Welcome to Equity Granted, an executive chat where we help guide you, the senior level corporate executive of a publicly traded company, toward personal financial peace of mind. In the coming weeks, we'll walk you through financial parity planning when choosing career paths, pension decisions, general stock based compensation, planning for the special needs of a family member, and planning for the international expatriate executive. SFG's sister company is SFG Investment Advisors, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Our website is sfgadvisors.com, spelled S as in Sam, F as in Frank, G as in George, A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. Hello, and and welcome to SFG Wealth Planning's podcast called Equity Granted and Executive Chat. This is Matt Witter, and I'll be your host today. The discussion today will be centered around the types of questions that executives should ask when planning for their special needs child and their financial future, as well as optimizing their quality of life in the event something happened to their parents. or caretaker. I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Leslie Mihalik. Ms. Mihalik is a, a shareholder of McAndrews Law Offices and the supervising partner for the firm's estates and trust department. She has extensive experience in post-litigation planning and utilizing various techniques and trusts designed to meet the specific needs of the plaintiff, which may include maintaining eligibility for public benefits or making a plan to protect the monies. She regularly assists families in navigating through special needs plans whether a young child, adult, or elder family member is involved. These efforts include qualifying clients for public benefits when they receive a lawsuit recovery, preparing special needs trusts, bringing guardianship proceedings, and carefully crafting an estate plan that maintains a disabled family member's eligibility for essential public benefits. So welcome, Leslie. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for having me today. Sure. According to the website www.specialneedsplanning.net, nearly one-fifth of Americans have a physical, sensory, or intellectual disability. Some 6.2% of children ages 5 through 15, which equates to 2.8 million kids, have disabilities. The U.S. Census Bureau says about 20% of Americans between 16 and 64 years old have some form of impairment, and many of them are outliving their parents because medical technology has advanced. More than 75% of special needs adults are unemployed. How does an executive plan for their family's financial needs, particularly if they have special needs child? There are many decisions that need to be made when planning for financial independence. How do they know if they have enough resources to achieve independence financially? And what other important considerations are there to ensure an optimal quality of life for the special needs child if something happened to the parents? So the first uh, question um, is probably the the most involved question on uh, special needs trusts, a uh, very uh, important topic for special needs families to consider. Um, there was a, a survey done back in 2005 by MetLife. I know that was a long time ago, but I, I do think that the information from the survey is is. Uh, just as relevant today as it was then. Um, it was a survey called the Torn Security Blanket, Children with Special Needs and the Planning Gap. Um, and in that survey, they say 69% of families uh, say they're very concerned about being able to provide lifetime care for their dependents with special needs. 88% of parents who have children with special needs have not set up a trust to preserve eligibility for benefits such as Medicaid and supplemental social income. 
What are the first steps that you would recommend taking for a family with these concerns? And can you explain how a special needs trust is used to protect these vital benefits? And also, um, well, I, I do have a, one more question as a follow-up, but I'll, I'll let you answer that question first. That'd be helpful. Absolutely, Matt. And when a family has a child with special needs, there are so many problems that they are confronted with. Getting a proper diagnosis, finding the right team of doctors and professionals, and learning, learning to navigate the special education system in schools are just a few crucial issues that they are immediately faced with. So understandably, estate planning and a preparing a special needs trust can fall to the bottom of that list. However, I cannot overemphasize the importance of estate planning for these families. And that estate planning includes preparing a will, a special needs trust, and also coordinating all beneficiary designations with that trust and the estate plan. Before the advent of special needs trusts, families were left with really poor choices in order to provide for their child with special needs. In many cases, they had to disinherit that child and leave monies to other children with the hope that those siblings would use the money for the benefit of the child with special needs. Some clients still want to do that today. However, we do not recommend it because even in the best of circumstances, that money can be lost uh, if there is a divorce, a bankruptcy, a spendthrift child, addiction issues, or so many other reasons. So today, we do have uh, the use of what we call a third-party funded special needs trust, which is also known as a supplemental needs trust. That is a trust that can hold money specifically for the child with special needs, and the monies in that trust can be used to enhance that child's life during his entire life. And the major benefit of that trust is it's really the only vehicle to hold monies for the child while still preserving the child's eligibility for public benefits. And when I say public benefits, I'm referring to medical assistance, which is also known as Medicaid. That is the broadest source of healthcare coverage that's available today. Along with Medicaid are the Medicaid waiver programs. They provide services, aids, group homes, or supported living arrangements, all which are designed to allow a person to remain in the community instead of needing institutional care. And then on the monetary side, there is Supplemental Security Income, or SSI. That's a monthly check a person can receive each month if he is disabled and has less than $2,000 in his own name. The maximum amount of SSI right now is $794 a month, and that is going to be increased to $841 in 2022. So all of those public benefits have that very strict asset limit of $2,000. That number has been in the law for decades. It has not been modified or increased for inflation. So as you can see, families of really any asset limit uh, really do need to do proper estate planning with this third-party funded special needs trust. If the preventative planning is not done ahead of time, uh, specifically preparing a will which directs any share for the child with special needs directly into his supplemental needs trust, if that planning is not done ahead of time, and if the child inherits monies outright, the process is much more complicated and more expensive. In many cases, court approval will be needed, and typically, uh, they will have to put the monies into a much stricter type of special needs trust, one that we call a self-funded special needs trust. 
that's much more strictly regulated under both state and federal law. And very importantly, that type of special needs trust uh, must provide for a payback to the state at the child's passing. And that payback to the state is for all Medicaid provided to the child over his lifetime. However, if we do the planning on the front end and we do a will that directs all monies directly into the supplemental needs trust, that trust can be drafted very broadly. We can have individual members as trustees if it's appropriate, and there is absolutely no payback to the state upon the child's passing. Can you elaborate a little more on that, you know, setting up the the two trusts and um, you know, what that, you know, looks like operationally or, or why, why does it make the most sense to set up two different types of trusts, one for the IRA and the other for lifetime gifting? Unfortunately, it's a little complicated. Uh, the reason that we have to do two is that the lifetime gifting trust might have, might have to have those crummy powers in them, you know, the annual withdrawal rights. And we can't, we can't do that and make the trust qualify for the secure act. That's really the major reason. So it, it's just a little bit more of a technical um, reason. Yeah, no, that, that's very helpful to explain that at a high level. Um, under which circumstances does it make sense to title a primary home uh, under a special needs trust? I know sometimes here with, with our clients, we do get that question. Um, and we would lean on somebody such as yourself uh, with your uh, law background to uh, more specifically answer that type of question. So what's been your experience with that? I get this question all the time. Uh, Almost all of our clients ask about this. Uh, But Matt, while the special needs trust can own a home, and it certainly can pay the expenses of the home, uh, this really is a very client-specific type of question. Uh, In most cases, we don't advise that clients leave their house directly to the special needs trust in the will. Uh, In most cases, it makes far more sense to allow the executor and the family to decide Uh, whether the child with special needs is able to continue living in the house and just whether that's the appropriate situation at that time. Uh, So in most cases, we do not advise clients to put the house directly into the trust. But that being said, the trust absolutely can own the home if it's the best case. Okay. And and so what, what, um, I guess, what what would be a rough percentage of the time does it tend to make sense? I mean, less than you know, 25% of the time, I I would imagine that there's a strong case to be made for that. Yeah, I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, In an ideal situation, and in some families, there may be family members that are committed and are willing to continue to live in the parent's home and care for the child with special needs. Uh, But in a lot of cases, that just doesn't make sense for either personal or financial reasons. Uh, So again, it's, it's very specific to the case. And we find overall, it's best to leave some flexibility uh, when the parents are no longer here for the family to make that decision. Sure, sure. Flexibility is key. That makes sense. You know, in the same survey that uh, we referenced um, a few minutes ago, 84% um, have not written a letter of intent outlining an agreement for the future care of their child. And drafting a letter of intent, it, it's probably a lesser known concept uh, among some folks, um, but its level of, import- of importance can't be emphasized enough. Do you agree with, with that statement? And how have you seen a letter of intent used most effectively with your clients? Absolutely. I fully agree with that statement. Um, The letter of intent is not actually a legal document, but it is a very important companion to the special needs trust and really to the entire state plan. 
the letter of intent uh, provides pertinent information about the child's needs, all of the individuals involved in his or her life. And it also provides an important opportunity for the clients to communicate their own desires and vision of the future uh, for when they are no longer here to care for their child. So the letter of intent, I find that it works best when it's treated as a living, breathing type of document that the clients are frequently going back and updating. I would say at least annually and certainly with any type of life change. Uh, and it really can include everything, soup to nuts, everything about the life of this child. Uh, for example, it certainly uh, should include medical information, the child's functional abilities, uh, their doctors, therapists, uh, contact information for caseworkers and anybody providing public benefits, um, school information, medications, financial information, any types of legal plans. If the family has done guardianship or power of attorney, that should all be in there. Uh, but it also includes a lot of information that's just very specific to your family member. And that includes things like their daily routines, their interests, their food uh, preferences, aversions, allergies, their personal care needs, uh, religion, holiday traditions, uh, any funeral plans that may have been made, uh, but their leisure activities and really just the family culture overall. It's essentially a document that can provide everything you would want a caretaker to know if they suddenly had to step into your shoes and care for your child. Uh, and if clients really complete this and take care and time in doing it, it truly can provide some important continuity for the child when the parents are gone. Um, if for our family members with special needs, their routines are very important to them and losing a parent who has been the main caretaker is a very difficult event. So anything we can do to provide consistency for them um, can truly help with that transition. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think the key words that uh, you used were continuity and consistency. And you know, when you put yourself in the the shoes of a future caretaker, it's it's such a significant responsibility and a big undertaking to commit to that. You know, before the time actually comes. So, switching gears to um, an, another topic, you know, a lot of our our listeners are executives with public companies, and um, you know the the survey also um, mentioned that eighty two percent of families are um, are concerned about their relative with special needs having adequate financial resources throughout their lifetime. Um, given how an executive's long term incentive awards make up a sizable portion of their wealth. What role can the awards play in a fully executed estate plan? And a, a couple more questions to go along with that. Um, if a stock plan allows the executive to choose beneficiaries on their LTI awards, does it make sense to choose a special needs trust as a beneficiary? In other words, we would typically recommend choosing the spouse first, so they're provided for. But what if there's enough wealth to justify choosing a special needs trust as another beneficiary? What impact does this have on on their quality of life um, if the SNT is funded in that way? Yes, um, you know I think that this could be a great way to fund a special needs trust. Absolutely, uh, I do agree that in general I would probably put the spouse first so we can make sure that the spouse will be taken care of for care of during his or her lifetime. Um, but if there is sizable wealth and we are able to also name the special needs trust, 
Um, I think it could either be named as a contingent beneficiary or as a percentage of a primary beneficiary as well. So if that was going to be the case, uh, what I would recommend is that the family draft the special needs trust as what we call an inter vivos trust. That means that it is a trust that is created when the parents actually sign it. Uh, it is a trust where we could open a bank account and the family could, if they chose, do lifetime funding into it. They don't have to. Many of our clients leave that trust dry. Uh, they don't fund a bank account with it. They just leave it dry until it's later funded through their estates. Um, but if we are going to name it as a beneficiary on a plan like this, I would certainly recommend using that inter vivos uh, special needs trust that could be funded at the first spouse's passing. The other way to draft these trusts is as what we call a testamentary trust. That means it's contained within the four corners of the client's will, uh, but that trust would not come into existence until uh, the, fam the uh, testator of the will passed away. Sure. But I think that's a great way to, to fund the trust. Absolutely. A lot of times when we're meeting with our clients, we're projecting out how long their assets are expected to last for and what kind of quality of life they're going to have. Um, over over a long period of time, you know, pre-retirement and post-retirement, what does that look like? And you do have a, a pretty good picture um, of you know what resources are potentially left, and um, and so you know having an idea of you know what will be left behind, um, you know, for that special needs child is is really important. You know, going back to your last point of um, you know continuity. Um, and preserving the quality of life that they're used to having, um, you know, being able to leave resources behind uh, in a trust vehicle is is uh, really important. And uh, long term incentives, you know, is a one of the fastest way to accelerate wealth accumulation, and is a great way to to fund um, a lot of times. Absolutely, because those public benefits that we talked about, they provide for the bare essentials of life, food and shelter is what they're really supposed to provide for. But the special needs trust can be used to provide for so many things above and beyond those bare basics that the public benefits provide. Yeah. Part of your background is that you're an adjunct professor uh, of taxation and special needs planning at the American College of Financial Services. And in a study conducted by Greenwald and Associates for the American College, uh, purchases of individual insurance policies increase in correlation with higher income levels. 38% um, of people have a term life policy. 46% have a whole life policy, which is like permanent insurance. Um, and 43% have disability coverage. Um, so for wealthy executives, we, we tend to believe in insurance only when it's absolutely necessary. Why, why recommend you know, insurance for insurance sake? Um, so how, how have you seen survivorship policies be used? They're also known as second to die policies. Some of our clients um, or some of our, our listeners um, you know, may have uh, some in place. Uh, some of them may be in discussions and, and want to learn more about it. But how have you seen these policies be used and how do you tend to incorporate insurance into your special needs planning discussions? In general, I completely agree that insurance should provide for a specific need. Um, so I also do not recommend insurance for insurance sake. Uh, but that being said, in situations where a family has a child with special needs, I think life insurance and particularly whole life insurance can be a very important part of the plan and really a great way to fund a special needs trust. 
with a whole life policy, the family can have the comfort of knowing that there will be monies to fund the special needs trust in the future, even if they suffer some financial setbacks during their lifetime. Um, it also can be a way to leave a larger share for the special needs child, if that's what the family decides to do, or to leave other assets to other children. For example, assets that may not be as appropriate to fund the trust, like business assets or something like that. Um, as a second-to-die policy covers two lives, the premiums are generally lower than the premiums on a single-life policy, so that makes them attractive in these cases. And the policies only pay out at the passing of both parents, but that's exactly when the need to fund the special needs trust arises, uh, because in a lot of cases that we see, the parents are committed to caring for their child and providing for their child during their lifetime. So it's really at the passing of both parents when we truly need the trust to be funded uh, for the child. Very, so I think those are a, a great way to fund the trusts. Absolutely. There's, there's so much uh, change going on, um, you know, all the time. And, um, you know, I know the secure act was passed back in you know 2019 and um, so just curious to ask you, what kind of trends are you seeing? What kind of discussions are you having with your clients uh, related to the passage uh, of the SECURE Act? And, you know, how does it relate to, um, you know, things like inherited IRAs and special needs trusts? And are there any other planning opportunities for families with a special needs child, such as lifetime gifting? So the SECURE Act really changed the landscape in regard to inherited IRAs. Uh, previously, when a child inherited an IRA, they were able to stretch that out over uh, his or her lifetime. Uh, but the SECURE Act limited that to now 10 years. So a person has to take uh, all of the monies in the inherited IRA out over a 10-year period. However, the SECURE Act contained an important exception under which uh, traditional IRAs that were left to a properly drafted special needs trust could still achieve the lifetime stretch. It's a stretch over uh, the trust beneficiary's lifetime. So in the past, we would uh, typically recommend that traditional IRAs be left to children without special needs, and we used other assets to fund the trust. But now that the special needs trust can get that lifetime stretch, uh, we are reconsidering it in certain cases. I will say that this is very client-specific uh, because there are also income tax ramifications of leaving a tax-deferred IRA to a special needs trust. And that's because income uh, in a special needs trust is typically going to be taxed at the trust's compressed income tax rate schedules, uh, typically at a higher amount than would be taxed at the individual rate. But that being said, again, this is something that we are really looking at uh, in each client case. Um, and in certain cases, it seems to make sense to leave the IRA to the special needs trust. I would note that the trust has to be drafted very carefully. Uh, there's a lot of IRS regulations about doing this in order to still get that lifetime stretch. So it does have to be drafted in a way that would prevent significant lifetime gifting into the trust. So if you had a family that wanted to make their annual exclusion gifts, 15,000 per year in 2021, that's going up to 16,000 next year. Um, if you have a family that wants to do that type of gifting into the trust, uh, in those cases, we're sometimes doing two different third-party funded trusts, one specifically for the IRA, and then another one in, into which the clients would make annual gifts. 
So that's a trend that we're really seeing uh, lately. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for joining us today. Your your experience and expertise is is invaluable, and we really appreciate your insights. And um, you know, I just uh, really uh, appreciate your your focus uh, in this area, and you know, the impact that you've had uh, on your clients' lives and their children. And um, you know, it's so important to be planning for multi generations and. Um, so thank you so much for, for sharing with us today. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure. And it truly is a topic that uh, I feel very passionate about myself. So <laughs> I really enjoy being able to do this work on behalf of our clients. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and to our, our listeners, thanks for, for tuning in today. We, we do trust that you found value in this, this uh, discussion with Leslie uh, on these important topics. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to Leslie directly. Um, or uh, you could also call our office as well, uh, depending on what your needs are. Uh, we hope you'll join us for the next episode. Thank you. The likelihood of various investment outcomes is hypothetical. Discussion of these possible outcomes do not represent actual investment results. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. Changes in investment strategies, contributions, or withdrawals may materially alter the performance and results of a portfolio. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and there can be no assurance that any specific investment will be suitable or profitable for a client's investment portfolio. Nothing provided herein constitutes tax advice. Individuals should seek the advice of their own tax advisor for specific information regarding tax consequences of investments. This discussion may contain forward-looking statements relating to the objectives, opportunities, and the future performance of the U.S. market generally. Forward-looking statements may be identified by the use of such words believe, expect, anticipate, should, planned, estimated, potential, and other similar terms. Example of forward-looking statements include but are not limited to estimates with respect to financial condition, results of operations, and success or lack of success of any particular investment strategy. All are subject to various factors included but are not limited to general and local economic conditions, changing levels of competition within certain industries and markets, changes in interest rates, changes in legislation or regulation, and other economic, competitive, governmental, regulatory, and technological factors affecting a portfolio's operations that could cause actual results to differ materially from projected results. Such statements are forward-looking in nature and involve a number of known and unknown risks uncertainties, and other factors. And accordingly, actual results may differ materially from those reflected or contemplated in any forward-looking statements. Prospective investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on any forward-looking statements or examples. None of SFG Investment Advisors, Inc., or any of its affiliates or principals, nor any other individual or entity assumes any obligation to update any forward-looking statements as a result of new information, subsequent events, or any other circumstances. All statements made herein speak only as of the date that they were made. SFG Investment Advisors, Inc. is an investment advisor in Doylestown, PA. SFG Investment Advisors, Inc. is registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC. Registration of an investment advisor does not imply any specific level of skill or training and does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission. SFG Investment Advisors, Inc. only transacts business in states in which it is properly registered or excluded or exempted from registration. A copy of SFG Investment Advisors, Inc.'s current written disclosure brochure filed with the SEC, which discusses, among other things, SFG Investment Advisors, Inc. business practices, services, and fees, is available through the SEC's website at www.advisorinfo.sec.gov.